Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Runner's World Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Runner's World podcast. Each month we'll be bringing you the latest training advice, news and interviews from across the world of running. I'm Ben Hobson, the Runner's World digital editor, and I'm here with Kerry McCarthy, the commissioning editor. Kerry, tell us what's coming up on this episode. Hiya. Uh, this month we are speaking with Hugh Brasher, the race director of the London Marathon. Professor Andy Lane will be talking about getting your mental game right for race day. And Mr. Running Tech himself, Kieran Alger, will be popping in to talk about the latest running gizmos that are rocking his world. Fantastic episode. Yeah, it's um, a pretty good lineup, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I'm I'm most interested about Mr. Andy Lane. I think not to not to immediately. You know, he's married, right? <laughs> Damn it. So, Kerry, what have you been doing this month? Oh, good question. Um, not that. M- oh no, wait. Oh yeah. Oh oh. Totes forgot. <laughs> Got on a plane. Went to Tokyo and did my final marathon major. Woohoo! Boom. Yes. A good day? Uh, what well, overall, yeah. if you take the, the big picture, it was obviously a good day because I A, I got to do a marathon, B, I got to do it in Tokyo, and C, it was the, the sixth one in the set, so I got that big medal afterwards. Um, but it just it tipped it down the did whole it? race. Right. Yeah. They put you in start pens quite early, so you're in there sort of ooh, up to an hour beforehand. No shelter. Getting soggy. Um, and obviously Japanese people are endlessly polite, so everyone was just standing there in kind of like semi-reverential silence, <laughs> just waiting. So, and I didn't feel that I could move, so right. I just stood there getting like, no one, rained on. Because, you, you know, a start, a start pen here is, is, is hustling and jumping and bobbing. And Yeah, you know, people sort of banging into each other, chest- testing their GPS and, you know, secretly going for wheeze in the corner and stuff like that. <laughs> or not so secretly. <laughs> or, not, or not so secretly, yeah. <laughs> Um, but there's no, there's none of that in Tokyo. So by the time that the gun went and we all crossed the start line, we were sodden, frozen, and desperate for a wee. Right. Um, but that aside, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. You know, I kind of had a bit of a concern that, you know, J- Japanese people would not make, say, as raucous spectators as yeah. Americans would if you're going to do mm. New York or Chicago. And And that is true, but I think... I think they've improved a lot in recent years. Oh. I was there in 2010 for it, and you know, there's there's more signs, there's more there's more clapping, you know, they're sort of having a go at shouting out in sort of English and Spanish and stuff to, to Westerners. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was it was it was a really good race, and it's a great feeling crossing crossing the finish line. That's excellent. Yeah. So, what about you? I mean, I moved house. Great. So I'm treating. Congratulations. Thanks. I'm treating the whole experience as cross training. Right. 
So all that, the boxes and the lifting, lifting. your son's toys and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, everything like that. That was cross-training. So I've done a lot of cross-training. Okay. Um, no, running's been good. Um, I'm, good. I, I'm meant to be doing a trail race at the end of the month, so um, I'm, it's not... I think with with lots of people, when they they sign up for things, you you sign up thinking that the course will be clear all the way to race day, and in fact it has not. And it's been, yeah. Uh, so it will... Uh, aspirations have changed but I'm looking forward to it. From heroic time to From heroic nav, survival. Well, well, yeah, <laughs> right. pretty much survival okay. will be the main thing. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Some, you know, 15 miles in the mud. It'll be pretty fun. 15 miles? Yeah, I know. It'll be fine. But, but you are a country lad at heart, so I assume yes, it's the days of running away from tractors when you're allowed to <laughs> will sort of stand you in good stead for this. Angry farmers chasing me as I pillage their orchards. Yeah, that's yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Scrumping my way through my youth. <laughs> is the Runner's World podcast. Coming up next, Rick and Ben spoke to London Marathon race director Hugh Brasher earlier this week about um, all things to do with the marathon on April the 28th. Here's what he had to say. Next month, the eyes of the running world will be on London for the 38th year of the Virgin Money London Marathon. For runners fast or fortunate enough to get in, it's bound to be the highlight of their running calendar. So who better to speak to about the event than race director Hugh Brasher? Hugh, welcome to the Runner's World podcast. No problem at all. Just to start at the beginning, um, what are your memories of the the very first London Marathon back in 1981? I think they're really, uh, for me, probably two memories. One is uh, working for three days at the Strand Palace Hotel selling 6,300 train tickets. Uh, So I was a 15-year-old and uh, it was um, March 1981 and my father needed someone to to help and... uh, so I was drafted in and, uh, yeah, really didn't know what was going on. Uh, just loads of people queuing up outside the Strand Palace Hotel. And there, there we were in the basement and there was an exhibition going on. And, and one of the things that runners had to do was, was buy a train ticket to get to the start. These days, um, your number gets you um, to the start free of charge. So that, that would be number one. And, and then number two was at the end of the three days being fairly exhausted, going to bed that night. And I wake up um, the next day, don't really watch the marathon, have anything, um, don't really think that much about it. And then on Monday morning, I remember getting up and uh, seeing the Daily Mail and there on the front page was um, Dick Bids and Inga Simonson hand in hand. And this is the front page of, of the Daily Mail and suddenly realizing, wow, uh, something pretty amazing has happened. I have no idea what it was, but I've been a tiny, tiny part of it. And uh, th- those were the first first memories. Looking forward then to the London Marathon uh, next month. Um yeah, I'm lucky enough to be one of the pacers this year, and I know that there's been some changes to the pacing times, particularly um, there being more pacing for the slower times. What's the, what's been the theory behind changing some of those pacing times? So we do an enormous amount of statistical analysis uh, in in the, in the marathon, and people will have noticed that each year the number of finishes that we have had has gone up yeah and and we've been working you know we're sort of four years into into a plan um of how to get more numbers up and that started off with putting timing mats at the narrowest part of the course then video cameras then changing the start process the marathon last year changing it again this year um and 
it, it's it's a huge beast in terms of mm. organization and logistical planning but um uh, not only is the, 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 the demographic of people um, running the event change. So again, go back to 1981. Yeah. Um, if you ran three hours uh, in 1981, you were probably halfway um, <laughs> down the field. Yeah, yeah. If you ran three hours now, you're in the top 10% of finishers. Mm. Um, so that shows it's become more accessible to everybody. But one of the things that we noticed in our statistical analysis is that there were big clumps of runners, big um, uh, high density of runners at certain points on the course. And when we actually looked at the data, those points were people running around the paces. So, uh, you know, we've we look, looked at that and, and we hope by putting in more paces, we won't get more clumps, but we'll spread the clumps out more yeah. so that in, in turn, um, you know, we're, we're upping the number. I think it's to 60 this year and the plan is to take it to 90 the year after um, because the paces are a great part of the marathon and, and, and knowing the pace that you're running, you're running on is, is uh, something fantastic, especially for first timers and, and 55% of people in the marathon and had never never run one before and it's a, it's an incredibly nice problem that you guys have with the london marathon but i still guess regard it is it is a problem is that um you can't accommodate everyone who wants to run um is there a potential to increase numbers in future races last year was the first time that we put uh wave starts in and and there are there are a different wave start so so we're doing it differently um to some of the other races and um our Waves are going about five minutes apart, and uh, there's a huge amount of data gone into it. Um, the reality of how we did it last year um, reduced runner density on the course and at the finish by 30%. Wow. Um, the modeling suggested it should have been 50%. Certain things that we did at the start actually didn't quite work, which is where we ended up with a 30% reduction. The changes that we've made this year uh, should further decrease the runner density. Uh, we had incredible crowd support last year which meant that at certain parts of the course, actually the crowd were reducing the, the width of the course. So, right. you know, there are so many different parts of this, um, this event that, uh, that you only have one opportunity to organize in th uh, 365 days. Yeah. And, 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 uh, but we do look at it in incredible detail. Yes, we're upping it. Um, and we have plans to increase it, uh, every year, uh, to at least 2027, I would say. Great. You also set to hit uh, a massive fundraising landmark this year, this kind of thanks a billion campaign that you're doing, so a billion pounds of fundraising. Um, do you see fundraising for good causes as being an integral part of the London Marathon's DNA? Yes, in, 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 in a one-word answer. <laughs> um, it, it, it is something that... that um, has, has been celebrated for some time, but it's also something I think that, that people need to be aware of the wider, some of the wider aspects of, of, of the event in, in the sense that these are not our roads. We don't own them. The London Marathon doesn't own them. No individual person does. Um, we have to uh, get permission from the Mayor of London, from Transport for London, who owns some of the roads, from the boroughs themselves. Uh, and um, it is 
getting getting permission and and the fact that so many charities are benefiting from from the event is a great reason that we are allowed to to close roads in one of the busiest capital cities in the world um, and getting that balance of all the different stakeholders uh, you know what we have is is pretty well every single entrant, uh, category of entrant, whether they're international runners, whether they're good for age runners, whether they're club runners, whether they're ballot runners, whether they're charity runners, pretty well every single one mm. believes that they should have more places in the marathon. And, and, and I can understand why that is, but we really genuinely try and get the balance right. Um, we move it because it is a movable feast. And, and as we get more, more numbers, uh, we, we, you know, as we can uh, get more people in, uh you you look at it again and again so yes i think it's a it's a really important part of what we do because it allows the event to take place um and it is very much an inspiration i mean people have so many different reasons to run whether it is to run a pb remember a loved one to raise money for charity to start being physically healthy to 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 improve your mental health whatever the reasons are um, they should be celebrated, and, and charity fundraising is absolutely one part of it. And to get to one billion pounds mm. uh, since 1981, I really don't think it was something that um, my father or John Disley thought about uh, in, in 1981. But I think they both would be absolutely incredibly proud of, of the events getting to that stage now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a staggering amount of money. I yeah. think just just to add to it, I think that the it's not only the runners and, the, and perhaps the charities that, that benefit, but all all runners. The, the the way that the charity cheer stations add to the course, the way that you know it's become such a celebrated part of having your the, the charities having their set definitely. spot. I think that that adds to everyone running. If you're running for charity or not, you get this yeah. wave of noise as you hit certain like points along the course i think that's that's so important to the whole thing as well yeah you are so right that the color the vibrancy um yeah, that's what what is so unique about london i think is the crowd engagement and the feeling that you get i mean in in life there are very few things very few few times that people want you to be successful if you've got four <laughs> true. If you, you know if you've got four or five friends that are going oh, i really want you to be successful that's incredible yeah, yeah. but on that day on those streets in london you put your name on your vest your t-shirt whatever it is you will have tens of thousands of people shouting your name willing you to be successful to cross that finish line to raise money for charity to 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 have improved yourself to have remembered someone and that sea of positivity that feeling is so unique and is so much what london the london marathon is about and and that's why year in year out people want to do the event why they're inspired to 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 enter and look we would love to be able to put on far more of them but it it is it is so special uh, that feeling and it is something to be to, to to be treasured and really does get remembered by people you know it's mo versus kipchoge in the men's race how excited are you to see those two battle it out on the streets of london i, I mean enormously exciting yeah. i mean i think i think i mean that's exciting but the women's race everyone is talking about it is the greatest women's field ever mm. put together yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think where, where you have David Weir on his 20th 
London marathon appearance. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, anyone training for a marathon, how hard is it to get to the start line in terms of illness or injury? Or yeah. And yet he's done it 20 times and won it eight of those 20. I don't know of any... Uh, athletic performance that 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 is is comparable. I mean, uh, Sir Steve Redgrave in, in in with his rowing over the five Olympic gold medals, uh, I believe that was over 16 years. I mean, absolutely incredible. It yeah. ranks up there. So I think you know we have so many amazing stories going on yeah. this year that will be going on. But Samo Farah, we supported him. London Marathon supported him uh, as 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 a younger athlete through St Mary's College. And while he was there, um, to see, you know, to, to be part of effectively what he has achieved as Britain's greatest distance runner, possibly the world's greatest in terms of Olympic and world championship medals. And then to see him break the British record in, in London to go on to be the the um, the first male able-bodied winner of an Abbott World Marathon major and winning the Chicago Marathon and breaking the European record, and now to be coming back to London to 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 go against Eddie Kipchoge, who what he did in Berlin in in September last year, oh, you know, it was just yeah. I mean, he beat the world record by 78 seconds to to be running 105 400 meters without a rest in 68 seconds. Um, you know, go out and try and run 400 meters in 68, in 68 seconds, seconds yeah. once, yeah. <laughs> and then he did 105 of them. I mean, it's just yeah. Yeah. quite incredible. And for that to be happening on the streets of London and the inspiration and uh, yeah, it's 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 enormously exciting. And uh, yeah, look, really looking forward to to uh, to this year. Definitely. I mean, I, I I think the current state of the the marathon is just it's just become this great phenomenon. But um, what's your vision for the event over the next ten years? How do you, can you is there still wiggle room for improvement? Are you guys constantly striving for more? Oh, massive, massive wiggle room. Uh, and uh, you know, we we have a business plan. We have um, you know. Part of our vision is in inspiring activity and, and as I say, a mission to really make running uh, and sport accessible to everybody. Um, we do a, a, a survey of all the runners at the end of the marathon. And what is incredible is, is that we get about 11,000 responses. Mm-hmm. And um, we do go through them. There are box, field boxes where, where people can, can write their experience. And there are so many places that we can improve and we're looking to improve. There's lots of announcements that we will be making about the 2019 marathon that haven't come out improvements that that that, um, that we're looking to make as I've already said trying to expand the number of people um, potential additional events there's lots of different things that we are are looking at and um, to to inspire more people to get into the journey of of, uh, of running and sport and physical and mental health one final question here if that's all right if someone's doing London for the first time this year, what, what advice have you got for them? Firstly, make sure that you have, before the event, make sure that on your training runs that you have tried 
Lucozade and Lucozade gels beforehand. Right. What you don't want to be doing is getting onto the course. If you've been using some other product, um, you don't want to be trying something for the first time. Yeah. So that principle of make sure that whatever clothing you're wearing, shoes you're wearing, it's not the first time that you've done it. You've done some long runs in it. You've tried it. You understand what it's done. That would be number one. Yeah. So don't do things for the first time. <laughs> That's number good. two yeah. would be put your number, put your name, sorry, on on your your vest, your top, go down beforehand to a, uh, put into Google print, printing on vests or printing on t-shirts, yeah. go to your shop, get your name on it. That would be number two. And number three would honestly would be have fun. Mm. Don't, don't feel pressured by doing a time. It is the most unbelievable experience. It is, uh, something that if you're doing it for the first time, you will remember for a long, long time. And uh, just try and take it in and smile and, and, and appreciate the incredible positivity of London coming together and the biggest ever street party. And you're one of 42-odd thousand people who happen to be running 26.2 miles around one of the most beautiful capital cities in the world. And, and people are there to support you. So just smile, have fun and lap it up. Sounds good. Hugh, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to speak to us on the Runners World podcast. It was fantastic to hear a bit more about the marathon and we look forward to it next yeah, month. Yeah, I'm excited already now. That, that's really great. That's really got it going. Yeah, well, thank you very much um, and uh, look forward to working with your paces and making sure that, that everyone gets onto their target times. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Cheers, Hugh. Thanks, okay. a lot. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks, Hugh. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. This is the Runners World podcast. One of the biggest things in the headlines this month uh, and one that has caused a lot of debate is the IAAF's um, decision to scrap the 5,000 and 10,000 metre events at the Diamond League from 2020 onwards. Um, the longest distance at, that, at those events will be 3,000 metres. Kerry, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, you know, to get serious for a moment, it's, it's a, I think it's a mistake. Um there's no two ways about it. You've only got to cast your mind back to August 2012, Super Saturday and all that, Mo Farah winning Olympic gold in, in the 5,000 metres and the 10,000 metres. Not the only occasion on which he's done that. He's, he's, he's repeated the trick since. You know, they, these events can be incredibly engaging and dramatic. You know, I just think, A, there are other ways to breathe new life into, into distance running into track and field meets generally without cutting back on the longer distances. Um, quick example, if you take the night of the 10,000-metre PBs... Yeah, it's a great night. Uh, ...in North London, where people can come onto the track and sort of stand at the edge of lane three, three mm. uh, while the elites, Joe Pavey and all the rest, are herring round, have a beer. You know, it's almost kind of like... I think we've said this before, but it's the closest thing we've got to, almost like a Tour de France stage, where people are that close to yeah, the athletes 100%. and the atmosphere yeah. they're creating. So there are ways of doing it. And I'm really surprised that Seb Kerr has come out and, you know, he's kind of said... What distance is... It? Uh... It, well, he said uh, that, you know, the sport needs to change and, you know, this and that. And they were all sort of fairly platitudinous comments, I think. Just the final point that I make is that we are all here because we do distance running. Yeah. You know, we work at Runners World, the readers read one as well and listen to this podcast because presumably they do events from 5k upwards which is kind of like our heartland they're not they're not track athletes and sprinters and so to disconnect this vast and growing sort of population of runners who are discovering this sport for their own reasons for charity for mental health for fitness for, for general health whatever else from 
the elites that are trying to set an example that we're trying to connect them to, it's just it just kind of seems a bit arse about face. This is the Runner's World Podcast. It's often been said that running is a 90% mental game, but how do we get ourselves in the best shape mentally perform on race day? With marathon season fast approaching, we thought it best to speak to someone in the know, so we're joined by Andy Lane, Professor of Sports Psychology at the University of Wolverhampton. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Good morning. What are some of the hallmarks for mentally tough athletes? What can everyday runners do to try and replicate those who've found that mental toughness? Um... Well, they can do a lot, and, and first is to um, in, is to appreciate and recognise that you've entered a marathon, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be 26.2 miles. It's not doesn't come easy, and that's for whether you do it quickly or do it or, or it takes you a bit longer. So the first is to is to recognise that and recognise that the the, um, the difficult parts mentally come at the back end, and to get yourself some experience of what those feelings are like. So. I mean, it's part, you know, the, all the training sort of goes to, we talk about the physical part, but actually those long runs are as much about training the mind so that you can keep going at the intensity you want to um, when it really starts to suffer. Because you know, it's going to be hard and it's accepting that. And the second key thing is patience. You really do need patience. You need patience in the early stages to keep calm. You need patience to, to make the right decisions. Those two things together are actually are really key for marathon performance. So, so does that mean, Andy, then that, men- in your opinion, mental strength is learned rather than innate? Or is it the case that some runners are just born risk takers and others are kind of destined to operate comfortably below their potential? Well, certainly, I think, I think it can be learned learned um i think you, you can get much tougher mentally and that tra- that the training of effect of that is huge but i also think that people have a lot more mental toughness than they realize and it only takes some activation of that before they are really really mentally tough so it's i mean it's, it's there and you've just got to activate it when you talk about activation is that is there sort of easy techniques is this sort of or is it as you said before the long run and the actual active act of doing these things is what activates these things well i mean it's, bit, it's the um the you'll get there through experience which is the um doing long runs doing training sessions which are hard when talking yourself into keep going that that's experience but you can you can rapid you can expediate that experience by doing mental training and by training in a way that um, that says that this is going to be tough, and we're going to tra- teach our mind to do so. So the um, so the mental training part of that would be to develop your relationship with fatigue at the back end of a long run of a marathon. Um, so you know, what is it? What are the thoughts that go through your head? What are I mean, the, the, the you know, it's going to feel hard. Um, at what point do you say I'm, I'm going? To, I'm now going to reduce the effort. And reducing the effort and reducing the speed um, or is going to lead to slowing down. And then you say to yourself, how will I feel about if, I, if it takes me X time to complete? And that is an emotional response. You play out those emotional responses. Mm. So, I mean, I had hundreds of goes trying to get to three hours. Yeah. And the idea that you get, to, you get to two hours, 40 minutes in, you've got um, just nearly three miles to go. And it's hard. Yeah. And the... The, the conversation is that it's really hard now. It's really hard. Um, and 
the um, at the moment it might well be that um, you might say well, actually there's, there's a marathon in two months' time. I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll just ease off a bit now and I'll save myself for that. So you slow down and miss it by two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, whatever it is, as the people, as it as you as your goal slightly moves about. If you had that conversation beforehand, and if you are going to miss it, miss your goal, how are you going to feel? You're going to feel guilty, upset with yourself. Typically, outside when we, when we do this in the cold in the foot thinking before training at home, we will go, well, we weren't very happy with that. Um, and so those unpleasant emotions then can feed forwards to go, actually, I don't really want that. And therefore, I, I'm going to learn to coach myself through those really difficult moments. So I was going to ask, Andy, with regards to, you know, when you're approaching your maximum in a race, it's, it is incredibly easy to give in to the voice, that little voice inside your head that wants to slow down or quit. I was going to ask how you can quiet it down, but it, it sounds like you're saying your ability to quiet it down will come from all the the work that you've done before race day rather than any magic bullets that you can come up with at that moment. Oh, yeah, you know, the... Um, the well, um, it's your, first you have your relationship. You always expect it to come and that you, you work so hard that it comes. So you go, oh, here you are. Oh, oh, you come. Now you are. You're 23 miles. Here you are. You're now telling me to slow down. And at that point, you want, you want other techniques to talk yourself out of that or put your mind somewhere else. So those then might well be to do, to have an, to do imagery of um, smooth, efficient running. So when that voice comes in, you might want to put in your head an image of smooth, efficient running. You might want, which is which if you've practiced it, you'll be able to get that image in your head, play it as if it's on the a cinema screen of your forehead, and that's the bit you concentrate on. But it, you, you'll be watching that film with a narrative of someone telling you to slow down, but you've got, a, you've got the conflict in your goals and your mind going, actually, I don't want to slow down. I have committed to this goal, and that's what we're sticking to. So the, but the key is to have... The key is to have done it and practiced it in advance in training in the same way that you've trained your legs, you've trained your brain. Absolutely. And, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, that would be one technique. Another technique would be a mental lasso of the person ahead of you. And you, you watch their legs going round and you imagine that they're actually running your legs. Oh, I like that. I like that one. So I've, never, that, I've never heard that one. So you ah. concentrate on their legs. Works brilliantly in cycling as well because it's cycling so rhythmical. And rather than running, is you find someone who's running around your cadence, and you make a mental lasso to them, and you go, "Oh, they're, they're, they're going to be running my legs." Andy, I think we, we've we've spoken a lot about sort of techniques that that um that people should be doing, but are there things that sort of common errors that people make before the marathon to mentally prepare that they can avoid doing? Uh, yeah, uh, there are, and I think partly it's in the goals people set regarding their expected time and it's because it, there's so many unknowns in a marathon and many people haven't got a really good relationship between their running speed over after 20 miles and so the the uh, and you see many people they, the idea that you start out slow and you're going to somehow save yourself is, is really quite difficult uh, and then around that would be the avoidance of really strong negative statements to yourself if you have to walk for a bit. Right. Um, because it's, I, think, I think that's okay. And I think what people can do in training, again, is learn to walk-run so they can then le- learn to talk themselves back into feeling okay again. 
and learning to, and go, actually, it's rather than be really... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Brutal and wrecking the enjoyment of it. Because, I mean, lots of people are going to be in London um, five hours. It's typically got bits in where there's periods of short bits of walking it's not you don't want to make it negatively you want to make it into a negative experience no you know what Andy that's I I 100% agree with that I've always I've never really understood when people say people say have you done did you do the marathon yes did you run the whole way as though that's somehow like marathon plus and you did the distance you got your medal your time is your time and however you achieve that as long as you ran the full distance is it almost doesn't matter. I've I've always thought. And there's um there's an American coach called Jeff Galloway, who uh, is a strong advocate of of the run walk method. And he I remember several years ago he took a group of athletes who were struggling to break three fifteen, and he introduced walking into their training, mm. and several of them smashed it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So walking doesn't equal weakness it, or no, slow uh, or slowness. I mean, it's tactical. Not at all. Yeah. And also, I think it's, it gives the body a, a small reprieve. You know, it gives, there's a there's a there's a loud uh, the recovery of a bit of a walk, and you're suddenly the muscles are under less duress and things like that. You can kind of flush a bit of lactate out and those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny, really, because I mean, different in cycling, no one has a go at the cyclists if they just roll down the hill, do they? No, no one has a go. No, I mean, walking, running hasn't got that little bit of a break, um, and so the um, if you're going to spend, five, I mean, and and five hours of hard exercise mm. is a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, the, I think people under don't really give the people who do four or five hours of credit because a lot of them are really working hard for a long period of time. And the gap between uh, the cruising speed and going at a slow speed isn't, kind of isn't always there. It's, as they're running, it's quite hard. Yeah. So it's quite hard running or not. And it's for a long period of time. And if we had a 2.30 marathon runner, it's like, well, you all have got to crack it. You've got to crack your, um, really, it's your 10 pay pace. And they'd, just, they'd go, well, I can't do it. I have to run, walk. And you go, okay, well, that's fine. And we'd all accept that because it's super fast. And we aren't so accepting of people for whom the physiological effect of running is really quite intense. And therefore, there is some recovery recorded outside of that. Mm. Uh, is needed, um, and it's not as. And the other bit is that it's, it is actually quite hard to do. I think 
uh, and for anyone who says that you shouldn't, you should run the whole way. They should do Snowdonia Marathon. Right, <laughs> 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 they should. Cause Twenty-three or four miles. There is the steepest, longest hill. Right? It must be about a mile and a half long. And anyone who's done it will, will have done that. And you are you try to run up it, and then you get passed by people walking. Yeah. Because it's it's functionally quicker to walk up it really quickly. Um, Andy, we're going to round off with one question, which I think is probably if our listeners could sum up all their kind of anguish about grit and mental strength, this would probably be the big question. Maybe we should put like a big question sting in here afterwards. Big, like, question. big question. <laughs> Um, and it's just, it's this. Does the wall really exist, or does it appear just because we expect it to? See, I don't think it does exist, really. I don't think the... the Amazing. The, the, Great. What, right, if, how many runners who are feeling the wall, have we ever tested whether a tiger would energise them next to them? <laughs> a big, stripey tiger appears on the course... And you say, I've given up. I've got no more energy. Yeah, it's true. A big stripy tiger turns. Res- resign yourself to being eaten because of the wall. Do you uh, do you think you'd get funding for research like, in that in that area? There hasn't been much. I mean, the gap in research is that it doesn't set the motivational, doesn't set the context so that the motivational um, aspects of the human are really tested. You know, right. we see Johnny Brownlee cr- crumble at the end. Yeah. But we put people on. We put people on um, treadmills, and we push them to supposedly exhaustion and they stop and that's all well and good but the motivational requirement to really nail it isn't there right isn't nail it isn't isn't there and it's we we don't i don't think we know a lot about that part where someone really really digs really deep to push themselves because they tend people find an enormous amount of extra energy of extra resource when they want it. That's why I think when I said that some people have got more than what they think they have. Yeah. When, I did a load of research on the, on the psychology of pain, how people cope through trauma, through difficult, difficult situations. And you get, you know, you hear the, the narrative co- comments of, and they're awful to read, but they come from women in childbirth, they come from people in unexpected traumas where they had no skills, where they've been caught by terrorists and this is how they cope. And you think, crikey, humans are resilient when they need to be. Yeah. And they find ways of, of coping and, and dealing with difficult things. So what, what you're so, saying is we need, to, we need to parachute some club runners into the big cat enclosure at the West Midlands Zoo and see what happens. I think that would create amusement. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, makes, that makes sense, Andy. And actually, that's really heartening to hear that, uh, to some extent, it's, kind of, it's all in our head, because next time it happens... I certainly know with me, I won't be going, well, this is just a physiological thing that's happening to my body and I can't help it. I'll be thinking, yeah. well, actually, you can push through this. Yeah, you can do, but you can't, it's not, it, it, there is, you know, you, you take the physical and mental training together. That's what I think is really important. So when you're doing the hard training sessions, you're also training the brain. Um, and so, therefore, you you will you know, you'll learn to pull those extra bits out. And those those experiences will come from training because you've done it before and you can do it again. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank that you, has uh, has well, I think this afternoon I will go and reintroduce myself to some endurance fatigue, and uh, sure. and remember it for later in later <laughs> use. <laughs> this is the Runners World podcast. We've all run using distance or time as a metric, but how about using power to grade your effort? It might sound like something that's a bit more applicable to cyclists, uh, because it has been up until now, 
but runner and tech guru... Uh, who put that word in here? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it is true. Tech guru Kieran Algert has been doing precisely this. And with great results, I believe. Um, running a sub-three-hour, or I should say another sub-three-hour marathon, because um, a little sod's done it before, uh, in Hamburg earlier this year. Uh, he's here in the studio, obviously, and to tell us all about running by power, it is Kieran. Hello. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Thanks for yeah. that great intro. Yeah. You're, You're welcome. welcome. Great the PB and the guru in one <laughs> sentence is you can tell that not I, often done. I rehearsed but... it remorselessly beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about you being, how you've been using power to, to grade your effort when you're training. Yeah, so I, I guess if you if you go back, I ran my first sub three probably about five years ago in London. And since then, I've tried maybe five or six times to hit sub three again using, you know, just using a normal kind of training plan. And this time I decided actually to try and do something different because I've, I've basically run and bust. So I would go out at a, at a pretty sort of killer pace um, and you'd be doing that thing where it's such a fine line that you either make it or you fail miserably. And I kept coming in at 311s, 325s, and uh, basically wheels would fall off at 18 miles. So mm. I thought, OK, we'll try something different. We'll use power in training and then in race day. And what power has sort of offered me is a way to... It basically is, a, is an additional metric to improve the insights when you're training. Mm. So we'll go into it in a bit more detail, but it does things like it can flatten hills out. So if you... If you're running in an area which is particularly hilly and you need to do a, a 10 mile at marathon pace, let's say, what are you going to do when you hit those hills? Do you carry on at marathon pace or do you ease back? If you carry on at marathon pace, you're going to basically putting too much load into the system or more load than your coach or your training plan is recommending. So you can use power because you can ease off and keep the power number the same up the hill as it is on the flat. Mm. So you can have a consistent effort with a consistent power. So it's yeah. really useful for guiding training. Well, that, that makes sense because it's similar to kind of doing it on heart rate where obviously you could leg it up the hill and your heart rate would go up, but you yeah. maintain it at the same level. But at the risk of, you know, sounding a bit like a dummy, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, what, yeah. what is power and what are, the, what are the units of measurement? So it's, all, it's measured in watts and, you know, it's been used in cycling for a long time as a way of sort of measuring consistent output. It's a little bit more complicated with running in order to take the, the mm. measurements because you haven't got a fixed position. Um, so you have to really think about power in running and all the devices that track it really as sort of benchmark stats. They're not actual hour, hour, power output if you were to sort of think about it scientifically necessarily. Yeah. So, But it's, it's basically the, the, the power generated when your feet are pushing off from the floor. So the, the technology in the sensors, the foot sensors or even in the watches are looking at um, movement of that sensor above the ground and below the ground and, like, and around in through vertical space. oscillation how that, far that your foot moves is how how quickly it's pushed off the floor or how high it gets above the floor it can it's all of those things together right. to calculate power so it's a bit you know if you think about the speed of which you're you're pushing off yeah. that's one measurement how i guess how high you'll go it also take into account elevation gain um with some devices using gps so it can see when you're going uphill and it computes all of this into a figure which is basically your power output um and I guess the really interesting thing when you talked about heart rate is that heart rate takes a little while to catch up. So if you run up a hill, mm. your heart rate readings will only actually get to where your heart rate is in mm -hmm. the real world after maybe t 15, 20 seconds. Right. Power gives you a reading of that effort and that intensity from the very get-go. So it's brilliant for things like if you're going to do an interval session, yeah. um, you, you know you're hitting the right effort 
or the right intensity yeah. from the very first interval rather than having to wait for your heart rate to warm up. So it's, it's very useful from that point of view. So the advantages there are obviously that, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a metric that's pretty instantaneous in data feedback and sort of levelling off the things, but are there any, have you found any real disadvantages with it? It's one of the, you have to be, I, mean, I guess people will, it'd be easy to sort of listen to this and sort of think, oh, not another metric. You know, yeah. It's very complicated. It's, and actually, it's, it's a very simple premise, really. It is, you can use it just like pace. Yeah. So you look at one number and you say, I'm going to run this race at 350 watts because that is the, the power threshold that I know I can maintain for 26 miles. And if you stay at that, you have a nice, even, consistent pacing. And that's that's a really nice thing, and you could that's the same as you trying to run at you know six thirties or seven minute miles. Yeah. Only you can again when you hit the hills, you don't have to adjust. One of the one of the downsides, I guess, is that that power can fluctuate from step to step. So you have to be if you're going to use power and you've got a device, I would really highly recommend that you set it to an average, so you get an average over a period of time. Yeah. So it evens it out a bit. You're not every step thinking, oh, my God, now I'm doing 700 watts, now I'm doing two, now I'm doing seven. Because you take the cycling metric, when you view power in in cycling, it's about um, max effort or, like, consistent effort up a climb, and it's kind of, like, graded in that way. It wouldn't be used... I don't think... It's only really used in time trials where it's a consistent high-level output. So if someone's looking at their power and they're trying to race, like, an individual 25-mile something, then they'll know that they need to sit at... 400 and something watts whereas for running it's it's more of a leveler rather yeah. than a sort of threshold kind of power sort of thing yeah i mean i'll give you i'll give you an example of where i used it in in training that really helped me i i ran a half marathon which was a trail half marathon very hilly very hot day so there's lots of conditions that would affect how my heart rate mm. is how what my pacing would be and i ran on power and i ran to a steady power which was which was you know within my ability i knew it was within my ability and i ran my second quickest half marathon but it was it was completely evenly paced even though there was hills and heat and by the end of it you know normally we were talking just talking or we're talking about kind of hitting the wall Mm. that doesn't really happen because you're you're controlling yourself you're under you're basically under a threshold so you can i ran my my best most comfortable (laughs) half marathon i've ever run you know that last three miles that normally make you feel sick (laughs) and that you hate don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen. But um, so it's, I find it really useful for pacing in, in that yeah. sense. Oh, really so, okay, but there's one thing I'm trying to get my head around. Let's say, okay, almost everybody, whether you're a beginner or, or a grizzled club veteran, is familiar with the concepts of, of pace. And let's say you're trying to break, you're training for a marathon and you want to break four hours. So you know that maintaining nine-minute miles will bring you in a... 3.56. Yeah. So you can then work out your training program, all the long steady runs, the tempo runs, the interval training, based on that time. Yeah. How do you work out what power setting, if you like, you, you run at if you're a layman? Because that's like, okay, how, how do I do that? It's It depends on the device. So with the stride running pod, mm-hmm. there's actually a couple of tests that you can do in the app. So it says... I can't remember the exact detail, but you'll go and do... Is that, is that the preeminent running power it's, meter device? Yeah, yeah. Right. And, you know, I think from, from a foot sensor, yes, if you want the convenience of just running with your watch, then, you know, Polar's Vantage V is pretty good because you don't have to have an accessory. Mm-hmm. But you can, in, in Stride, you can do two or three different types of tests uh, in the app. You go to the track and do a number of, of repeats. And from that, it will gauge and set your power limits. Mm-hmm. And you there's a calculator in there. It's really easy. You hit a button and it says... 
for a marathon or for a half marathon, yeah. this is your your threshold power, and that's the I've that's the, the number that you have to run to. So I've done a bit with with Pan now. I was with the Stride Pod, and, and right. um, um, I think it's like uh, exactly like I you how how do I use this as a useful thing? And I think that yeah. it's like with anything you take. So say your, your example of four hours. So if you're doing nine minute miles, you might become familiar with a heart rate that equates to that pace now what i found was, was was that if you you're suddenly another metrics just appearing next to that which you then learn how it behaves so it's it's not necessarily you'll adopt it immediately but it's another one of those things that like oh right so if i'm doing four hours so i know that that nine minute mile so i looked at my pace and i learned that pace and i learned that that pace equated to a 145 bpm heart rate all right great well look if i now look at the power that's next to this oh it says 320 watts and that seems consistent right, Do you see right what I mean? yeah so, so, so they all sort of they, it's, it's another one in the arsenal of 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 metrics it's not just a yeah and but the, the great level the great reason why it's useful is as curious as the examples of hills and stuff like that is, is you, and, and you can I, I guess the other thing is you could you can set all of your runs if you wanted to if you wanted to go that deep into it you could run all of your training runs by power so you can do threshold sessions based on power yeah. set thresholds or you can yeah. do your long runs based on a on a on a thresh on a on a power setting rather than a pace setting. Um, so in ter- so in terms of how easy it is for the layman to interpret power data, it's a question of putting that metric in on your data field screen alongside existing ones which you're already familiar with so that yeah, over a period of a few sure. weeks or a couple of months you get to know yeah. what means what. Yeah, just, yeah, it's a good way of using like familiarising yourself with the whole thing, yeah. Just have a play. I mean that it's just interesting even just to pop it on there and see you particularly if you're running routes that go up and down it's quite funny to see how much power you're putting in at different points and you know how how actually even small inclines take a lot more out of you than you think okay so if if i'm used to doing um intervals at a certain pace but then i start to train by power and the 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 suggested wattage it's giving me is actually making me run slower than i normally do do I then kind of take that to mean, actually, you've been doing this pace, but you're not really fit enough to do that, Kerry? What you need to do to sustain it is this slower pace and just suck it up and get on with it. Oh, that's a really good question. So if your your pace is, you're basically running at the wattage and running at a slower pace. Then you've traditionally done. You've is, traditionally is that done. like a good revelation of like, actually, this is my level, I need to stop deluding myself it- or... It would suggest it would suggest to me that the the power setting that you're trying to run to is probably set too low, rather than there's something with your your own fitness. So you, that that wattage that you're running to, you can probably you probably have more capacity. If right. you, you know if you're used to running at a, a six thirty, all of a sudden you're running at a wattage that is making you run at eight minutes. You've, you've clearly got a bit of room to go, and you can up the wattage. So you can okay. run. So yeah, and in, in that sense, it's it's you know these things are they're very relatable. So you you could sort of literally sort of see it as an alternative pace in yeah. that sense. Okay. No, so that's super interesting. But I think we should probably move off power. Now. I love talking about power. <laughs> until power we, hungry, I know, I know. Is it? We've, 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 until everyone's just like overloaded with power chat. <laughs> yeah. um, you've been exploring how uh, running tech can help uh, match you with the shoes of your dreams. There's actually a, a feature on on Runners World on the website at the moment, which yeah. people can go and read. So, but just to elaborate on that, um, people are so used to a gate analysis and then in a shop staring at a wall of shoes, but yeah. it's come a long way. It's yeah, it's moved on a lot, and I think we're still sort of in the early stages. But I, I, I love the idea. You know, you go into a running shoe shop. We've probably all done it. You go up, you look at that big wall, you pick up a pair of shoes, 
you probably bend them a bit. You sort of weigh them in yeah. your hands, which are not scales, by the way, people. And, they, and actually, there's you know there's a lot of tests to show that this is a really really not a good way to be to be weighing a shoe. And then we do, and then we pick a colour that we like, or we run a bit in it. But there's a lot of technology that's coming on board now that can really help us to understand what's going on in each pair of shoes when we run in them mm. from a data point of view. Um, so there's a there's a one company called Dorsa V who have a set of sensors that you wear on your shins. You jump on a treadmill for two minutes in each pair of shoe and it comes back with data on your running efficiency and your running economy that can help you identify which shoes you run best in. And that sounds like something that a shoe, like a running shop, could have in and yeah, so in, in store and let people just try out four different pairs of shoes and all that sort of stuff. So some some specialist running stores will have this yeah. already. Um, and it's a, it's really interesting. I've I've done this test and the shoes that I thought I really ran well in, or I really liked my my natural sort of choice of shoe, which was quite a minimal, lightweight. Actually, I run really much better in sort of something that's a bit heavier and has a bit more stability. Right. Which was I didn't want to hear that news, but it's interesting. <laughs> that that's um, yeah, but you know that's that raises an interesting point. Two years ago at the London Marathon Expo, um, Runs World Deputy Editor Joe Mackey and myself went. We we had meetings with several of the the brands in attendance there, and three brands had. Uh, different types of gait analysis technology which way they were showcasing so we got ourselves assessed on each of them and you know what's coming <laughs> we got we got given different kind of readouts yeah. and one brand for me one brand said uh, I needed uh, a neutral shoe one brand said that I needed a kind of like a mild over pronation shoe and another one said that I needed a massive brick sort of motion control shoe Yeah. and when you listened to the presentations from the biomechanists and stuff that they had there, on the surface, it all sounds quite compelling. But, you know, you get to the end of the process and you're like, clearly, I can't need all three of these. Two of these guys are wrong. Sure. But that's that's what I think is... And I, you know, I'm, I love tech, but this is where I think tech can solve some of that problem because you, you don't get subjective opinion and analysis. You get hard data saying, in these shoes, mm. your running form was like this and you your ground contact time was quicker you know the amount of energy that you're wasting in certain areas was was more in these shoes than other shoes and you get a report that shows mm. you your efficiency so an, another interesting piece of technology that does this there's um asics have just put together a, they've taken all of the data that they've got with their professional lab setup where they're doing you know motion capture and pressure plate work to assess how runners run over over however many years mm. thousands of data points put it all into a system and they're using that so that you can hold an iPad up, video yourself running on a treadmill, and it then uses an algorithm and the data they've already got to tell you how you run and and how your running efficiency scores are. So if you can if you can see it in cold hard numbers, actually it removes some of that that subjective uh, sort of thing that you'll get when you go into a running store. Yeah. And at the end of the day, though, Kerry, I mean, I, I think that it's, you you basically have to you can't take out the humans entirely. If yeah. you put those shoes on and you think I I hate the color, I can't possibly run a sub three in, in orange shoes, <laughs> then don't buy them. You know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was going to say, do we really need technology to tell us which shoes we should be wearing? I'm sure there's going to be a large sort of number among our listeners who, like, some of them will be like, yeah, I need all the, the tech and marginal gains information that I can get my hands on, and some will be like, dude, I just run twice a week for a bit of health and I just want something comfortable. Isn't it a case of these are comfortable, they suit me, my needs, they're within my budget? Why complicate things? 
I think I, I I think but then I think you're now talking about two very different runners. I think you're talking about the people who, as you say, run twice a week and are comfortable in their shoes and that is all that matters to them in terms of like getting out the door. And then I think there's and then there's possibly people within our remit who are like enjoy the data and perhaps like feel that if there's a way of someone optimizing a running performance or a running experience and that is by having someone analyze my running form using technology to tell me that actually that shoe is better than this shoe i i would buy into that straight away but, but also don't forget there's also those people who are more casual runners this yeah. the injury factor comes in yeah. you know putting you in the right shoes that can can help you avoid injury or, or or look at how how shoes affect your different running style it gets gets down to sort of being very unique and, and a bit more bespoke um i think it's just how much of a nerd you are right it's, you could be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're more geeky, you're gonna like, you're gonna enjoy this more. I, yeah. You know, I I want a future where my I, I'm running in my shoes day to day, and at some point they they tell me you, these, it's, these it's are no longer retired. the right these, yeah these are no longer the right shoes for you or, or just hang me up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, your shoes will physically stop <laughs> moving. <laughs> this is not working out. Yeah. It's you, it's you, not me. Put me back in the cupboard immediately. <laughs> Do you think we're approaching a time when this kind of tech-led personalization of footwear will be pretty commonplace i know 3d printing and stuff in in production processes and i i just think it's it's such a it's such a commercial opportunity for brands to have a a better relationship so you know forever well basically until now you buy a pair of shoes you take them home and that's the end of your relationship with the with a brand if you can put chips in shoes that are starting to gather data Mm. that are watching or or quantifying how you run and how you run the brands can start to have connected shoes right connected shoes you're starting to have a a, a more two-way relationship and that's commercially valuable for these guys but also i think just it could be very interesting from a from a user perspective as well because you your shoes are going to teach you a whole lot more about your needs and, and and what you need so i i can only really see it going one way particularly because the i mean to get into the nitty-gritty of the costs of putting these these kind of sensors in shoes is coming down mm. so you can actually buy a pair of shoes at the same price point with sensors in them as not so you kind of might as well have them. So, that, so these shoes with, with technology in them, I think the, the phrase is connected shoes, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So if you had to, you know, presumably that's not a term for shoes with a really impressive little black book. So <laughs> how would you explain what they are? Is it, is it literally any type of tech in a shoe or is it a particular type of tech that means it's a connected shoe? I, I see connected shoes as shoes that have embedded sensors. So Bluetooth sensors, motion tracking sensors that will connect to an app or maybe direct to a computer and they'll fire stats and information back to a to a smartphone. So so they're kind of almost replacing smart watches or you know GPS training watches. I, I think they'll actually be a layer on top. So you know you you always you're always going to want your stats where you can see them mm. on, and I think on your wrist is the, is obviously the best place. But if you think about right now we've got Stride which is a foot pod that sits on top of the shoe it's an extra accessory. Yeah. Most of the work that Stride does could be done built into your shoe and just fire that data to your watch so i see i don't see it replacing a watch i see it as a sort of bringing additional metrics to your watch and the sort of in, the insoles that you add to your shoes of arion and, yeah. and those guys and, and the, the yeah. tech that they're bringing out you know that uh, there's no way that bigger brands wouldn't adopt similar things but in a standard insole rather than yeah. an additional layer that you add in so yeah yeah absolutely i mean i know under armor uh, have been having a go with a couple of their recent versions with a kind of mixed degree of success. I think the general mm. 
it general works, viewpoint is it's, it, it works and it's nice and keep going. We'd want to explore this further, but yeah, I think you know there've been sort of Bluetooth connectivity issues and stuff like that. It's um, not. It's not tracking enough metrics no. for me now. It's not bringing enough, and it's always post-run difference. And it's. it's it needs to be. There's the real-time coaching, yeah, yeah. Ben. Right. So you yeah. can. You know, if, you, if the shoes are starting to help you understand what's going on in your run real time and helps provide mm. information. Yeah. Um, but it's one of the great things. I think one of the leaps they've made is that the sensors don't need charging. So all the ones that we had in, before from Nike and Adidas, you had to charge the chips sensors. These shoes, they last. You don't have to plug them in. You. They're just. As your other running shoes, you pop them on, they automatically connect to the app and you're out. And you can run with them and track even without your phone, which is also a nice nice bit. Yeah. So there, there's you know, there's little things that are showing there is there's a I think there's quite a bright future for this. Do you know what I've just had a little in my head, I've just had a little sort of glimpse into the future when you talked about brands having more of a relationship with you and they'll be obviously they'll be able to tell in the same way when you don't go to the gym for a bit and you get that email saying come on don't give up come to the gym <laughs> brands will be like um well, you I haven't mean, been for a run for four days you think, like, think about how i mean anyone who's got an apple watch or, or a smartwatch in general that that pings at you stand up yeah yeah. To the, oh, you haven't reached your move goal. You know, that, that interaction imagine, between tech is not one way anymore. It's yeah. like, no, it's no. Like, I know. can imagine, like, Nike somehow, like, partnering with the alarm function on your phone and you wake up to Mo Farah's voice saying, get up, get up, <laughs> <Come> on, <laughs> put your trays sure. on. I mean, the latest, the next release in the, in the run app will be that. <laughs> exactly. Um, right, we've, we've talked enough tech. Let's talk about running okay. um, in its purest form. You, so Hamburg, you PB'd. Congratulations. Was it a PB or just it, was it just the under three target? It was it was a PB. Great. If you count, I don't know if this counts. You guys might be able to clarify this for me because some people have questioned it. I did a, I did a fifty second PB, so it was two fifty seven oh five down from two fifty seven fifty six. Does that let right? me let me be very clear about this? If if your time is a microsecond quicker than anything you've run before, it is a PB. Congra- yes, congratulations. I'm, I'm just shaking Kerry's hand here, right, by the way. Thank you very <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, definitely. Let's clear that up for everyone. Um, so you've you've done that, and that was actually quite a long term project, wasn't it? Using different different training techniques and all those sorts of things. So yes. you've done it. Yeah. What's next? So next, I am going back to a race that's beaten me twice already. It's called the Lavaredo. It's a 120 kilometer mountain ultra mm. in the Dolomites in yep. Italy, and I'm not going to lie. Twice it's kicked my ass. I've got to year one. I got to 95 kilometers. Year two, I got to 93. So obviously good. Getting worse. Um, <laughs> I took a year off last year because my family didn't want to go to Italy again. <laughs> and I've managed to convince everyone that we can go back this year and give it a third and final crack. This is this is it, final. And this is it. Yeah. So this is my this is get serious time basically. I've I've I have to finish this race this time or it won't happen. Well, we've we've got an interview on this very episode of this podcast with Professor Andy Lane about mental strength and grit and all that kind of jiggly. And you've been there so twice before. You should listen to so... it this time. I will. I will definitely be listening to that. I might listen to it whilst I'm running, <laughs> just when it gets to the hard bits. Good. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Kieran, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'm hoping that that has um, swayed a few more people to embrace some technology in their runs, just to help them along the way. I don't way. see how it can fail to do so. That was incredibly lucid. <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks guys. a lot, mate. Cheers. This is the Runner's World Podcast. So that brings us to the end of this month's Runner's World Podcast. I want to say a big thank you to our guests, Hugh Brashear, Professor Andy Lane, Kieran Alger, and to Scramble Studios in Soho, where this was recorded. For more from Runner's World, why not visit our website, runnersworld.com slash UK, where you'll find more news, reviews, and interviews from the wide world of running. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give us a rating. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next month. The Runner's World podcast was recorded at Scramble Studios, Soho.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.